said, we're going we're gonna to open with the, uh, with the 23rd Psalm here. So let's, let's go ahead and just read this together. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid. For you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. I think to, at, at some point, probably most of us, many of us, have heard that psalm. Probably not in the New Living Translation, let's be honest. You're probably in the King James or in some other, in some other translation. You've, you've probably heard this. It's one of the most famous Bible passages, I think, that exists. Maybe, maybe short of like, you know, don't judge me, um, you know, or something like that. You know, like, uh, you know, it's one of, the, one of the most famous Bible passages, right? People have it at, at funerals. People use it in times of trouble. Why? Why? Why is this one of the most popular Bible passages. I think there's a lot of reasons for it. It's, I think it, 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 in a way it gives us a vision of what we wish the world was like. What we wish our lives were like. What we wish we could ex experience. As we read that, it brings a comfort because it's what we desire. Deep down, it's what, it's what we want in our lives, right? We want to be led to those green pastures. We want to feast. We want to be provided for, to be taken care of. We want to live with a king that, that treats us right and well. And so I just think for a moment, let's, let's imagine a kingdom with a king like this, where this is the experience, this is the reality, that we have all we need. That there are these green meadows that if we were, you know, using the metaphor of like a shepherd and sheep that we feast on. Peaceful streams renewing our strength. I just think, what would it be like? How would our world be different if this really was real? If this really was a true thing about God? If what, what David says here in Psalm 23 could be reality. We would have a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of abundance. We would have a kingdom of love and a kingdom of, of, of care, a kingdom of guidance where we aren't aimlessly wondering. Because let's be honest, I think many of us feel that tension of almost sometimes like I am aimlessly wandering through life and I wish I could just gain some real direction. I think many of us are longing for that. We live in a world where there is, where everything feels up in the air. Everything is contested. What if there was a real king that could guide us so that we weren't aimlessly wondering? Like I said, I think this Bible verse is popular, or this passage is popular for a reason. It's beautiful. And it's what we all want and what we need to be true. 
And so as we get ready to read our passage here in Mark chapter 6, I want us to keep this in mind. Keep this in the back of your head as we see what Jesus says, what Jesus does here in this passage in Mark chapter 6. Because I think that what we see Jesus doing here in Mark chapter 6, what we find is the kind of king that we see in Psalm 23. As we read Mark chapter 6, we see this Psalm 23 kind of shepherd, this Psalm 23 kind of king. And we see his kingdom breaking in. So let's read Mark chapter 6 together, verses 30 to 44. The apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all all they had done and taught. Then Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving and people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. But Jesus replied, you feed them. With what, they asked. We'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. How much bread do you have, he asked. Go and find out. They came back and reported, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. Then Jesus told the disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of 50 or 100. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish looked up toward heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so they, could contri- so they could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share. They all ate as much as they wanted. And afterwards, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. A total of 5,000 men and their families were fed. All right. As I said, as we go through, I, I just, I don't know if you guys saw some of the comparisons that I saw there to Psalm 23, like sheep without a shepherd. And here we find Jesus having them sit down on green grass and he feeds them and meets their needs. This is the king that Mark has been trying to tell us about. What's interesting is that this is the only miracle. So this, this miracle story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 is the only story, the only miracle story that we find in all four Gospels. So the Gospels are an interesting thing, right? Because each one is written by somebody giving their perspective on what happened. You know, the story, it's it's true. They're they're all giving kind of their, their testimony to what happened. And they each choose oftentimes different stories to bring out of the life of Jesus to tell us about what Jesus was like. And so it's, it's not that often that we find a story about Jesus that's in all four Gospels. 
And when it comes to miracle stories, like I said, this is the only one, which should probably tell us that this story is very, very important because it communicates something to us incredibly significant about who Jesus is and what his kingdom is like. So Mark intends for us, I think, to see beyond just the bread, right? As significant as that is, he intends for us even to see beyond Jesus' power to multiply the bread. I think what Jesus, or sorry, what Mark is doing is instead asking the question that he's been trying to answer, that he continues, that he answered actually all the way back in the very first verses of, of the book. And that is this question. Who is this man? Who is this man? See, in the, if you remember back, like Mark kind of does one of those things, like I don't know if you ever watch like a movie where they kind of give you the ending at the beginning and then show you how they get there, right? Or you think about it, like last night, Alyssa and I watched an episode uh, of The Right Stuff. Um, it's a, I don't know, I, I didn't know about it until last night. Anyway, it's one of those, you find a show, you go, oh, I'll give it a try. And it's one of those too. It's about the, uh, how the U.S. made their way to, into space, you know, and, and it follows kind of the stories of the first U.S. astronauts. And, and it gives you the ending, in the beginning, and then it begins to tell the story, I assume, over the episodes of how they got there, right? And, and Mark kind of does a similar thing, right? If you think about it all the way back to Mark chapter 1, in Mark chapter 1, if I can get there, Mark says in the very first verse, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then he spends the rest of the book trying to answer that question, trying to show you the answer to that statement, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so continually we find throughout the story, over and over, Mark probing kind of with these questions that, that leave us asking these questions, or, or even he, we see the disciples asking these questions. Who is this man? And this is another one of those moments, I think, as we read this story, we're left asking, who is this man? And, and, and here's why I think that. Mark, Mark is going to give us a lot of clues that probably you and I don't see right away. Because let's be honest, most of us do not know our Old Testament, probably as well as we should, um, or, or, or really maybe even that well uh, at all. All right, no shame. I get it. Like, I understand the Old Testament is a hard book. But, but one of the things that Mark does is he gives us, he, he wants us to go backwards in order to go forwards. It's one of the reasons why I think we went back to Psalm 23. I think there's even within this some allusions uh, to Psalm 23. But one of the things, and, and here's what we're going to do. We're just going to kind of, like I said, walk backwards a little bit. So like we'll put on our, our, our nerd hat. I don't know, whatever you want to call it. And we're just going to kind of unpack some of the stuff that Mark says here and see why it's actually significant, Right? Okay, why this miracle that Jesus does? Why it's communicating something so significant about who Jesus is? In 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 to 16, we read a story about a guy named Elijah. Right? And people have already, we've already found that people are already kind of going, is Jesus Elijah? I don't know. Some people say he's Elijah, right? As we were in, in just last week, we read... Um, we read the passage uh, where it talks about, 
people, it mentions that people think that Jesus is, is Elijah, right? And Elijah is one of, the, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament canon, okay? Now, he doesn't write a book. There's not a book of Elijah, but we read about these stories about him going around and doing all of these really significant things. And so he becomes one of like, you know, the cornerstones that when people think of who are the prophets, Elijah is one of, one of the names. And so one of the things that people think is Jesus is Elijah. He's, he's Elijah. Come back. And, and you could see maybe how people would, would get there, right? Elijah, at one point, met a lady who was a widow in Zarephath. And Elijah was hungry. And he needed something to eat. And so he went to this woman, this widow, and he said, I need you to just give me something to drink and give me something to eat. And she says, well, you know, I was just out here collecting sticks so I could start a fire so that we could eat the last little bit of our food and then die. But hey, sure, why not? I'll make you a piece of bread. <laughs> like, I don't know, I just find that's like kind of an interesting scenario. You're like, well, I guess I'll make you a piece of bread and you can, you know, I'm going to die anyway. I don't know. It's just, what, the, what optimism, right? Anyway, like, so, so then Elijah says, that's very kind of you. And he prays to God and God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make sure her flour and her oil and her water, like they don't run out. Until the drought, because there was a drought, until the drought is over, she's going to eat. She's going to have plenty to eat. And so Elijah then performs this miracle, and, and she has an abundance of food. I think in a way, it kind of reminds us of, of our story here, right? We have people, you know, where the disciples are like, we need to send them away. They need to get some food. They're going to starve. And Jesus says, no, we'll take care of it. God will provide, right? What's interesting is the very next story, we find the widow has a son, and he dies. And Elijah lays over him three times, and that son is risen from the dead rises from the dead. Now, if you remember back a couple weeks ago, we read a story about a little girl who died. And Jesus went and grabbed her hand and said what? Talitha kum. Little girl, get up. And she gets up and they give her something to eat and, and off she goes. We're seeing over and over that maybe Elijah and Jesus are somewhat similar. They have some some similarities. Maybe Jesus is a prophet in the vein of Elijah. But if you know the story of Elijah, then you know after Elijah, there came another prophet. And his name was Elisha. Not to be confused with the one that sits here up front. You know, like, um, and his name, and this is why we named Elisha, Elisha. His name means, our God is salvation. I love that name. And Elisha, he receives a, a double portion of the Spirit, right? So he somehow gets like, you know, if you thought Elijah, it's like one of those, you thought Elijah was great? Elisha's even better, right? So he comes after Elijah. And what we're going to find is Jesus actually compares John the Baptist to Elijah. So perhaps Jesus is more like Elisha. And what's interesting is in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 to 44, we find Elisha, feeding some prophets. And as Elisha, you know, Elisha's told in 2 Kings 4, well, it's a short, we'll just, we'll just read it quick. It'll probably be faster for me to read it than to try and retell the story. And I, God probably wrote it down better than uh, I would tell it anyway. So 2 Kings 4, 42 to 44, we find this story of Elisha. Well, we'll start... Uh, Elisha said, bring me some flour. Then he threw it into a pot and said, now it's all right, go ahead and eat. 
and then it did not harm them. One day, sorry, 42. One day, a man from Baal Shilshah, there's a name, brought the man of God a sack of fresh grain and 20 loaves of barley bread made from the first grain of his harvest. Elisha said, give it to the people so that they can eat. What? His servant exclaimed, feed a hundred people with only this? But Elisha repeated, give it to the people so they can eat. For this is what the Lord says, everyone will eat and there will even be some left over. And when they gave it to the people, there was plenty for all and some left over, just as the Lord had promised. That remind you of anything? The events of this, this, that Mark is telling us here are true. Okay, they're not a made-up story just to compare to the old story. They're true. It's a true story. But what Mark is showing us and telling us is exactly what Jesus meant by that story. That when he did this, he wasn't just giving people food to eat, but he was saying something significant about who he was and why he had come. Elisha fed all of these people with 20 barley loaves. And we find instead Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves. Jesus is like Elisha, but way better. He's a prophet, but he is so much more. Elisha had a double portion. Imagine what Jesus had, right? In Jesus, we see one who is greater than Elijah, one who is greater than Elisha. Now, we're almost through, it doesn't, but it doesn't quite stop there. There's one more stop in our Old Testament that we need to make before, before we begin to kind of come back to, to our story more, more fully. And that's this. We need to make a stop off back in uh, the story of Moses. All right? So I think here in the story, Jesus is very much showing that he is a greater prophet than Elisha, greater than Elijah. But he's also, I think Mark is communicating to us that Jesus is a greater Moses. Now, do you guys know anything about Moses, right? If you know anything about, about Judaism, you know Moses is kind of like, you know, there's Abraham and there's Moses. Like these guys, they're, they're the guys, right? Because what does Moses do? The people were in slavery in Egypt. And Moses, through obviously God's the one who does it, but Moses is the one then who leads the people out of Egypt. They are, you know, they, this is the second book of the Bible, it's called Exodus. They make an exodus from Egypt. They cross the Red Sea and they end up in the wilderness, in the desert. And God provides for them over and over again through Moses. The law is given to the people through, by way of Moses. Water, manna, and food is given to the people by way of Moses. And so there's these things throughout the, the story here that I think Mark uses deliberate language that is to remind us back to Moses. All right? Stick with me here. One of the things that, first things that we see is the use of the word eremos. That means nothing to you, and that's fine. It wouldn't necessarily mean anything to me if I didn't study these sorts of things, right? But eremos is the word for wilderness or desert, or uh, it can mean like desolate. Now, this is one place where I think the New Living confuses the matter in that it translates 
Um, so, eremos, that word shows up three times in this story. Three times. The first time, the New Living says, uh, let's go off by ourselves, this is verse 31, to a quiet place and rest a while. If you're not using the New Living, yours probably doesn't say that. It might say to a desolate place, um, to the wilderness. Uh, it's, it's the word eremos. Right? We find it again in verse 32. So they left by the boat for a quiet place, or for a desolate place, for the wilderness. All right? And then later we find the disciples. In the afternoon, they came to him and said, this is a remote place. This is a desolate place. This is a wilderness. This is the same word, eremos, is the same word that we find in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for where the people of Israel wandered for 40 years, in the Eremos, in the wilderness, in a desolate place. The feeding of the 5,000 happens in a desolate place. And so Mark, I think, is drawing a parallel between this and how, through Moses, God provided the people manna, food to eat, quail to eat. He provided for them what they needed in the wilderness. However, the difference is, is that our wilderness here has a green pasture, which I think is kind of interesting um, that Mark mentions that. All right, the next comparison I think we can make to Moses is when Jesus says that they are like sheep without a shepherd. That is a direct quote from Moses. All right, in Numbers 27, verses 15 to 17, we read, Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, you are the God who gives breath to all creatures. Please appoint a new man as a leader for the community. Give them someone who will guide them wherever they go and who will lead them into battle so the community of the Lord will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Now, when we read the Bible, we see that Joshua is the immediate answer to that prayer. But Jesus, I think, is the ultimate answer. Moses predicts that one greater would come after him. Uh, the author of Hebrews, in speaking about Moses, says that Jesus is greater than Moses. As good as, G as Moses was, Jesus is better. And so Jesus is a better leader, a better shepherd than Moses ever was. And so we find that then that Jesus is a better king or a better David figure. Moses was a leader. David was a king. But we find this language of sheep without a shepherd show up again. It shows up several times, but I think a significant place is where we see it in Ezekiel 34, 22 to 24. We read, so I will rescue my flock and they will no longer be abused. I will judge between one animal of the flock and another, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. Now this is important to remember, David is dead, long since dead when Ezekiel is written. My servant David, he will feed them and be a shepherd to them. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be a prince among my people. I, the Lord, have spoken. So that is a prophecy that one from the line of David will come and he will shepherd the people and lead the people back to God. So Jesus is like Moses, but greater than Moses. And like Elijah and Elisha, but greater than these prophets. This story, then, is more than simply about Jesus' ability to perform a miracle. It is an intentional miracle that points at who Jesus is and the kingdom he came to bring. Jesus, then, what Mark is trying to communicate is the Messiah, the one who was to come and to rescue 
his people and to bring them into his kingdom. All right? So this event is not just a great miracle. It's prophetic. And it uses Old Testament imagery all over to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. All right. Take a deep breath like we've we made it through. You did it. You know, maybe you fell asleep a little bit. That's all right. You know, no shame. Okay, I understand. History's not for everybody. But this is important. These connections are important, guys. These connections are important because it helps us to see. The Bible is not just a random book slapped together by a bunch of people. Like, this is something that God has crafted, that God has, has put together. Now, he's used human beings to write these letters. It is, it is both a divine book and a human book in that God inspired people to write these books, but they still got to write them in a way that they wanted to write them, right? So God made sure that what he wanted said was said, but he let them use their language to do it. And so God puts the Bible together in many ways like a quilt. And so you have literally thousands of years making a gap, you know, of, of gap. And somehow that, this one on this end of the, of the Bible and this one on this end of the Bible come together and weave together in this beautiful quilt about who Jesus is. Now, the last thing I'm going to say is this, kind of on, on our illusions in the story. Right? We talked about how it goes all the way back to Moses, how it goes to Elijah and Elisha, but I think in a much closer way, it also connects to our previous story about Herod. Because I think it's deliberate on Mark's part that we get a picture of what the kingdom of Herod looks like, and we get a picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. Now, last week we spent a good bit of time talking about the kingdom of Herod, what it was like, what the kingdoms of this world are like, and so we're not going to spend a lot of time um, this week on that. But all of to say that I think this story deliberately follows because Mark is showing us that Jesus is the rightful king, that Jesus is the true leader of Israel, not Herod. And so let's return just really quickly, though, to the story of Herod and the John the Baptist. Because I think in this story, right, we, we read in the story about how Herod and, and his wife, sort of, his brother's wife that's with him and now his wife, and, you know, like, all kinds of weird stuff going on there, right? How they, the two of them manage to be so incredibly selfish that they end up killing John the Baptist, right? And using their stepdaughter, niece, daughter, all of that folded into one, um, they use and abuse her in order to get what they want. It's a terrible story. And yet what I think we find, and you can read it for yourself, for the sake of time I'm not going to read it, that this is what the kingdoms of this world are actually like. I think so often our world paints this picture of what it looks like. You know, if you just do whatever makes you happy. It's this, it'll be this beautiful way of living. Everything will go well for you. Everything will go wonderfully for you. And yet, it paints this, again, like I said, this picture that getting whatever you want, having whatever you want, is this sort of, that's what's going 
to really satisfy. That's what's going to make you happy. But I think what we end up with, I, how many of you guys have seen the original Men in Black movie? I know I'm like dating myself here. Is this like, okay. It's one of those classic movies maybe? I, is it classic? I don't know. In my, in my, uh, in my estimation, you know, it's a classic Will Smith um, movie. But anyway, in it, right, aliens come to the world and one of the things is like this giant alien cockroach that ends up like taking over the body of this man and like, you know, like goes inside of him and wears his skin. That's okay. That's sounding weirder. As I'm saying this out loud, it, like in the movie, it's not nearly as like terrible as it made it just sound. Anyway, I think this is how evil masquerades. It wears the skin like it's something that it's not. It convinces people that it is something that it is not. And in the end, what ends up happening is, is Evil tells you, do whatever you want. Everything's going to go well. Think about yourself. Look out for number one. And what ends up happening eventually is that we see underneath that skin, we see the thin, uh, past the thin, thin veil or experience life past that veil for what it really is, that it's this selfish, wicked thing that ends up abusing other people. It leaves me unhappy. And we see this in Herod and, and Herodias. That this is what the vision of our world actually looks like. It sells you a clean, neat, and tidy vision of the world. But the reality is there's a nasty underbelly of exploitation, of selfishness, and of greed. That that's really what's at the heart of, of Herod and Herodias and the way that they live their lives. And yet it's the exact same message that we hear all the time. And what sits underneath them is exactly the same. And eventually the consequences are very similar. People get hurt. People get abused. Lives are destroyed. That's what happens. We see it all the time. I mean, you guys, I mean, we see it all the time in our world, don't we? We see a contrast then, I think, between Herod's banquet that's in an isolated palace where only those who can benefit him are invited, where people are taken advantage of for other people's pleasure. We see a contrast then between this, this kind of banquet that Herod throws and the banquet that we see Jesus throw. Because I think that's what it is. Jesus ends up throwing a banquet for these people, right? He takes five loaves and he makes it so much everyone leaves completely full. Jesus' banquet is one where all are welcome to the party, regardless of their social standing, regardless of their economic worth, regardless of their benefit or their ability to benefit Jesus. All are welcome to the party that Jesus here is throwing. All are welcome to Jesus' banquet. The banquet of Herod was all about using other people and gaining and maintaining power. But the banquet of Jesus was simply a response to the needs of people as they sat and they learned at the feet of Jesus. And so, the main motivations of the kingdoms of this world our pride and selfish gain. Did I just say? Yeah, okay. Our pride and selfish gain. But Jesus' motivation was compassion. And what kind of world would you rather live in? One of selfish gain and, motiva and motivated by pride? 
or one of compassion? I mean, I like to think that's an easy question to answer. But the reality in our lives is often that's a very hard question to answer. We like our selfishness. We like our pride. Thank you very much. So there is a difference. There is a conflict between Jesus' kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. And we're going to see that play out as the kingdoms of this world kill Jesus later on. But as we come to verse 34, one of the things I think we see, we read this. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Jesus felt compassion, not contempt. Jesus felt compassion for the people. He saw that they had needs, and his desire was to meet those needs. And this, I think, is important for you and me to hear. I don't know how important this is for you to hear, but I think it's important for all of us to be reminded of. Jesus does not feel contempt for you. He feels compassion. And maybe you've grown up, grown up in a tradition where, where you felt like Jesus maybe felt contempt for you, that God maybe just kind of tolerated you because he had to, or, you know, if you were good enough, then you could force God to accept you, or, you know, like, if you just did enough nice things for him, then God would owe you one. And maybe, you know, or maybe you, you just kind of felt like, ah, God couldn't love me. Or maybe, you know, God doesn't like me. Here's what we see, I think, in Jesus. Jesus does not feel contempt for you. He feels compassion. You are not beneath God's love. No matter how you feel in the moment, you are not beneath God's love. He does not feel scorn or disdain for you. Jesus loves you and has compassion for you. Do you know, even there, I think back to Herod. God sent John the Baptist to preach to Herod all the time. I think, I think God loved Herod. I think God loved the Pharisees. And Jesus spoke to them and preached to them constantly and consistently. They are the ones who continually rejected his love and compassion. But God went to them and spoke to them. John the Baptist consistently and constantly was speaking to Herod on a daily basis, or on a regular basis. And ultimately, Herod rejected that and killed John. You are not beneath his love. If God would go in compassion to Herod, if Jesus would consistently and constantly go in compassion to his enemies, then we can see that Jesus, too, has compassion for you. And he's calling you back to your created purpose, to enjoy him, to live in right relationship with him, and to live in right relationship with yourself, to see yourself for how God sees you, somebody who is worth Enough that he would go to the cross. To put in right relationship with you, or sorry, with him, with yourself, with others, and with creation. And so I was just thinking about this, like as I was reading this story. What kind of world would it be if people's primary motivation was compassion and love? This is the vision of the kingdom of God, guys. This is the vision of the kingdom of God. 
What if, what if the one with ultimate authority used that authority to serve rather than be served? This is a vision of the kingdom of God. This is what we see Jesus doing. The one with ultimate authority is serving and loving. This is the kingdom of God. And guys, like to me, when I read this, that is infinitely better. It's infinitely better than the visions of this world that say, just go out and get whatever you want. Take it, step on whoever you need to to get where you want to be because life is all about you. I think an infinitely better vision of the world is to say that actually life is not all about you. Life is about enjoying relationship with God and community with other people, loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. This is a far greater vision for the world than anything that advertising or you know, philosophers could throw at us. Augustine, in his book, City of God, talks about two cities. There's the earthly city and the heavenly city. And these two cities, it's not like some spiritual city and some earthly city, but rather what he's getting at, he says this, accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves. Rather, there's basically, there's, there's two kingdoms in this world, two types of kingdom in this world. The earthly kingdom was formed by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. But the heavenly kingdom, the one that God is bringing on earth, the one that Jesus came bringing, the heavenly kingdom, is formed by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. And this sounds counterintuitive to say that actually the way I find life and life to the full is by finding the love of God even to the contempt of myself. So what we find is ultimately God's kingdom is breaking in now and will fully break in in the future. All right, so this kingdom that Jesus came to bring, it started with Jesus, and it's breaking in, and it's been breaking in ever since, and one day Jesus will come back once and for all and set things right, because we know there are still plenty of Herods in this world that live as their own little kings, ruling with their, you know, their own little kingdoms, bringing evil and injustice and selfishness and pride. We know that they still exist but they will not last. They will not last. And we live in this in-between, and as the church, as the people who live as citizens of God's kingdom, we get to bring his kingdom with us wherever we go. We take it with us as we live out the kingdom, as we show compassion instead of selfishness and pride, as we love and feed those who need it. You know, like all of those things, like we actually, in a way, carry God's kingdom with us. So I ask the question, which kingdom would you rather live in? Because we have to choose. We can't keep a foot in both kingdoms. It doesn't work that way. We have to choose which kingdom we're going to give our allegiance to. Which one is it going to be? And as we kind of, kind of wind our way down here, we come towards the end of our sermon. I just kind of wanted to get real, real practical because I think we've been kind of up in the air a little bit saying like, hey, we need to decide what kingdoms are in. That's very practical. Like you need to do that. But what does it look like to live in the kingdom of God? What does this passage show us that it looks like? What are things that we need to do that this passage can show us how we need to live in the kingdom of God? I think there's two things. 
And I think even this shows the beauty of the kingdom of God. There are two formative lessons, I think, that we see from the disciples that maybe we can implement in our, in our lives. And that's it's this. Living in the kingdom of God frees us to rest and to serve. It frees us to rest and to serve. Let's look at this real quick. Rest. You and I are free to rest without guilt and to enjoy the presence of God. In fact, part of healthy spirituality, part of living in relationship with God is learning to rest. Because in learning to rest, I learn that everything does not depend on me. The world does not revolve around me. It will survive and go on just like it's survived and gone on you know, for thousands, however old the earth is, however old human beings have been here, it's gone on. People have died and the world has gone on. And you are no different. And I am no different. The world will go on without us. And I think resting is that reminder to ourselves, maybe that we are not, in a way, not as vital as we think we are sometimes. So we're free to rest without guilt and to enjoy the presence of God. We're free to say no to some, some things and to say, I'm actually going gonna, gonna to rest. We're free to enjoy the presence of God. So we rest with God, though, because rest is a place of restoration. And it's not just a place of physical restoration. It's a place of spiritual restoration. It's a place of both. And, and this is why I think rest, in a Christian sense, often it needs to be intentional. Rest is not just like binge-watching Netflix. Like, that's not real rest, okay? Like, besides the fact that most of the stuff on there is like complete rubbish. But like... But to say, like, that's not, that's not real rest, right? That's not, like, restful. But it's saying, actually, intentionally developing rhythms in my life that say, I'm going to take time to rest and focus on my relationship with Jesus. Get to know him. Spend time with him. Rest is an important part of a healthy relationship with God. We need intentional time to rest and to spend time with Jesus, right? That's what Jesus was like. That's what he said to the disciple at the beginning of this passage, right? Things are insane. Let's go off. Let's rest. Let's take a break. Just us. We're just going to go hang out and spend some time together. And you and I, in the busyness of our lives, need to take time to do the same thing, to get off and to rest. Whether that means, like, you know, figuring out a day where you take a Sabbath, you turn your phone off, you, you spend time with your family, you intentionally take that time away from the busyness of life and spend time with God and with your family. Or whether that's, um, you know, making sure you're taking plenty of time to, you know, carving out time to spend time in prayer and to study and to listen to God. All of those things are important. And they're not something just for the super spiritual. They're something all of us can do. We can carve out a little bit of time here and there to do those things. Now, one last thing I want to say about rest. As somebody who is about to have twins in my house, I know that there is going to be a season in my life where rest is impossible. <laughs> right? And we all go through those seasons. You've all been through those seasons at some point in your life where it's just like, you know what? It's not, it's not going to happen. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. And it doesn't need to be small children. Do you know, like, watching, you know, sometimes, like, 
for instance, my, my mother-in-law care for Alyssa's grandma. That was an intense time, a busy time. She didn't have a lot of time to rest. Right? And we, we all go through, and, and even there, seeing, seeing my parents care for my grandma. You know, I, I can see that. Or Tracy, you and you and your mom. Like, I, I, I see that. There are times, guys, where, where it's just like, so it's not like feel guilty about not resting. It's like, okay, there are times, legitimate reasons to say, like, I just can't. And even there, maybe a, a really busy season at work that you just can't help it. It's just the way it is. Like, that's it's how it is. But, and here's my but. Um, here's what I, sorry, Bob, this should not be a normal and forever pattern of our lives. That is not healthy. It is not sustainable for that to be the normal everyday pattern of our lives forever. You need to rest. You need to rest. The last thing I think we see is that we, we serve. We should serve. You know, Jesus says to them, you feed them. <laughs> Jesus is the one who does a miracle, but it's still up to them to hand out the bread, right? We are free to serve from compassion and love, not selfishness and pride. We don't need to pat ourselves on the back. People don't need to see what we're doing. We can just serve out of love and compassion for other people because we've seen and experienced the love and compassion of Jesus in our life. So do we trust? Do we trust God enough? to rest? Have we experienced the compassion of God enough to be able to serve with compassion ourselves? And even in this service, I think one of the things we see in the disciples is that, that they didn't understand fully one of the great themes of God. Right? This is like, you know, they're kind of the, the fall guys a lot in, you know, in the Gospel of Mark. Right? They, they, they kind of, you know, they play, they play that role. You know, really, I mean, we see ourselves in the disciples, I think, you know, often. Like, they didn't understand one of the great themes of God. And I think this story makes it clear. Because one of the great themes of God, whether you're looking at Elijah, whether you're looking at Elisha, whether you're looking at Moses, whether you're looking at Abraham, whoever you're looking at, that God takes our little and he makes it enough. God takes our little and he makes it enough. Do we trust that God can do the same in our lives? Take the little you have and make it enough. What would it cost you to live for Christ, to live with Christ? Because it's going to cost you something. And it's important, Jesus says, to count up the cost. Right? What, what, what's it going to cost you? To be a citizen of his kingdom. And do you believe it's worth it? As we end here, we find this, these words, they all ate and were satisfied. Now that's, from the, that's how the English Standard Version translates that. Yours may say, or until they were full, or if you're like the New Living, had as much as they wanted. But I love the way, I love the way that that's probably more literally translated there. They all ate and were satisfied. You guys, we're invited to come and to eat and to be satisfied. What kind of kingdom is that? That is truly able to give us an abundance and to leave us satisfied. 
What if that was true? Let's go back to Psalm 23 there. What if that was true? That there was a shepherd, a king, who could give you a life that left you satisfied? How much better would that be? This is what Jesus offers. They all ate and they were satisfied. Jesus is the one who shows true hospitality to his guests. He rules with compassion and gives in abundance. And as we read in verse 41, Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven and blessed them, then breaking the loaves into pieces. He kept giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. We remember another meal that in John, or Mark chapter 14, Jesus presided over, where he broke the bread and he gave it, gave thanks for it. This meal, this last supper that Jesus has in Mark 14, pointed to the way that evil would seek to destroy Jesus and his compassion, but that Jesus would defeat that evil through his own sacrificial death. Jesus' hospitality and abundant giving went all the way to the point of him giving up his life. And at communion, which we're going to take here in just a minute, we eat the bread and we drink the juice and we remember the abundance that we have been gifted through Jesus, who himself is the bread of life. Now, I'm going to close by reading a poem by... uh, What a, I don't know, I think a powerful way to finish. There's a poem by this guy, Prudentius, um, and in it, uh, this poem called The Bread of Life, he writes, Thou our bread, our true refreshment, never failing, sweetness art. He can never more know hunger, who is at thy banquet fed, nourishing not our fleshly nature, but imparting lasting life. Every sickness now surrenders, every listlessness departs. Tongues long bound by chains of silence are unloosed and speak aright, while the joyful paralytic bears his pallet through the streets. Let's pray.